Welcome to Presence Church Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit PresenceOC.org. Yeah, come on, Jesus. That's Joe and Rachel. You know, just releasing people into freedom and connection with God. I love these guys. Uh, I'm going to... I have, you know, Jesse said it earlier, he's like, fresh manna. <clears throat> and I was like, yep, that's what I'm releasing this morning is fresh manna. And this is a message that's kind of like stirring in me. It's my season. And I love, you know, I love preaching out of your season. And <clears throat> this is, I'm going to start it off with a speech that Theodore Roosevelt, it's a famous speech, the man in the arena. <clears throat> yes. Do we have any like Brene Brown people in here? All right, sweet. Then you're going to like what I'm speaking on today. <clears throat> it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the, door, the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. That's a pretty epic speech. Uh, Bernie Brown has an amazing book, The Gift of Imperfection, and the subtitle is The Journey of Wholehearted Living, which has really been the journey I've been on at, for 37 years with God, is you know, talking about soft heart. That would be another translation, and that would be wholeheartedness. That that's something that I've gone after ever since a little boy, is to just, you know, that place of David, you know, that as a man after God's own heart and having that softness of heart. And I'm going to talk a little bit about peace. I'm going to talk a little bit, and that's kind of one of the big, big ones that I'm going to hit on. And I'm going to just kind of hit you with a bunch of scriptures on peace. You guys ready? Jesse is. <laughs> I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, and do not give it to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Deceit is in the hearts of those who plot evil, but those who promote peace have joy. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. I love how peace and joy are connected. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. That sounds like an epic worship service. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is one of my favorite ones right here. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus. So I love vulnerability, I love authenticity, and I actually had an encounter with the Lord uh, in my kitchen. I love encounters in various places, uh, whether that be the movie theater, my kitchen, um, you know, I don't know, you, you, we've, we've had crazy encounters. I loved being a junior high pastor, and these kids would get rocked by God, and we would take road trips. And it was really crazy when the 10-year-olds and 11-year-olds would, would be, they'd be like missing at the, you know, the gas station. And then we'd like go into the men's restroom and there's like three boys on the floor like screaming, oh my gosh, God's got me. And like, I'm like, okay, that is an authentic place of an encounter. Like that's the most disgusting place. Like if you're faking it, you have some issues in the men's restroom of a gas station bathroom. 
anyways, mine wasn't that extreme, but I went to go get a snack one night. Uh, it was like 10 o'clock at night. I had just driven from Pismo Beach doing ministry. And so I had done like nine days of ministry. I wasn't even like spiritually, you know, like, oh, I'm going to encounter God tonight. Like I just did like nine days of just like, and I had driven seven hours back home to Reading and I was like, okay, I'm going to get a snack and I'm going to like kind of get ready to like shut down the engines and go to bed. It's like 1030 at night. And this angel comes into my kitchen and touches me in my heart. I end up on the ground, like just shaking and going, and Julia's like, oh my gosh. Like she watched me for like a couple hours. Like what in the world is going on with Chad? And I saw the father in heaven and he handed me these scrolls. And one scroll said authenticity. One scroll said vulnerability. One scroll said presence. And then under it said present. And then that's when God said, one of your greatest mentors in life will be your daughter, Brielle, who at the time was eight months old. Uh, now she's almost five in like a couple weeks. And yeah, I love that. I love that my daughter is one of my greatest mentors. And let me just give you an example of that. In, it was about a, a couple of weeks after this encounter in the context of your daughter be one of your greatest mentors. I come in the door and she's just learning the word dad. And so she sees me, she's like, daddy. And I'm like, oh, and I'm like, and we're talking by saying daddy. And I'm like, I said daddy all the different ways you could say daddy. Like daddy, oh daddy, oh daddy, daddy. And we did this for like 40 minutes and it was amazing. And then the father says, Chad, to the degree that Brielle knows English is the degree that you know the language of heaven. And I was like, oh dang, all I know is daddy? And the father's like, no, 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 no. You're, you're, you're off top, you're, you're off the context. That was, were, were you ever bored saying daddy with Brielle? Were you ever chiding her saying, Brielle, you should know other, you, you gotta, I'm not gonna love you or be present until you know a full sentence. Like you were just consumed with this exchange of saying daddy and that's how I am with you. You're learning how to say daddy and I love it. And then the big one was, God said to me, Chad, I want you to begin to learn more of the language of heaven and how to articulate the gospel to a generation that's never heard the gospel in their language. And then I began to really just have this like commissioning, this whole deal. I started going to Coachella, started going to Lollapalooza, started going to music festivals, started going to just different places to pray. And I have a whole deal on intercession and the whole, you know, it was, it's a blast. But it's crazy when God calls you to pray for a generation. And by the way, I'm a tweener. So uh, that means like I'm a Gen Xer and a millennial or, you know, it's, it's those that were born 79 to 82. They're tweeners, which is intriguing. But anyways, I begin to pray and begin to, you know, and it's, you know, it's 2014, October 2014 to October 2018 were crazy years and it felt like a Charles Dickens story like this is the best of times it's the worst of times you're having encounters where angels are touching you in your heart you're like you know we, we would start doing these catch the wave services and people are getting saved on the beach people are getting healed on the beach like it was an epic awesome time but then there was some some circumstances some trials some like you know it, and some of it's the enemy and it's just like you're getting barraged and in October 2014 to October 2018, it was too long to tell you all the different stuff, but we had six deaths. All my grandparents died. All of my wife's grandparents died. We had a miscarriage. I had three surgeries. Uh, I had uh, somebody steal 12 grand from us. Um, you know, and then when you have three surgeries and you have, uh, another thing is I had iritis, which is caused by stress and anxiety. Um, you know, you have all those doctor bills and all that fun stuff. So finances weren't the best, especially when people are stealing money from you. Um, you know, and then I had some family members kind of go through some tough times walking with them. And it was, you know, anxiety came into my life for the first time really ever at like 34 years old, 33 years old. I've gone through hard stuff before, but I never had anxiety. And it's interesting, like... You know, I think God is releasing a spirit of unity, and Joe released that unity word, and I used to always get dreams about unity, I always get these prophetic words about unity, and I always put it in the, the box of, oh, unity is breaking denominationalism. 
But it's way bigger than that. That's one dimension of unity, but another dimension of unity is breaking compartmentalization. You know, we had theology from Constantine and all these different, you know, guys that were into dualism or like, hey, when you're a new creation, your spirit is a new creation and your, and your soul and mind and will and emotions is the battlefield. Take all your thoughts captive, all this stuff, and that's going to be the battle. And then your body is just like rotting away and you can't wait to shell and you can't wait to get rid of it and have your, you know, like your heavenly body. You guys, some of you are looking at me with that tone of voice, but it's amazing, like with science and with, uh, you know, Brene Brown and the books like The Body Keeps the Score or The Emotional Code. Like we're understanding that we are way more connected into our emotional, our spirit and our body than we realize. And this is breaking of compartmentalization that when our spirit becomes a new creation, it affects, uh, you know, it goes under and connected to our will, mind and emotions and our physical body. And when you're dealing with anxiety, you might have like some stuff going on with your body that's screaming, hey, you better take care of this in your emotions or in your, you know, what's going on. Yes, yeah, some of the, you are really resonating with this. I love it. This is like grown-up talk here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> many ways. <laughs> And so I started dealing with night sweats. I started dealing with, you know, just a number of different issues. And, and, and it's interesting when you kind of go through anxiety, your community, 80% runs for the hills and 20% come closer. And there's a number of reasons for that. It's very convoluted, but, you know, it could be that sometimes it's hard for people because they don't have the answer. And what's so important when you are going through whatever it is that you might be going through that's for trauma or whatever it may be, that you need people to just go on the journey with you. All right, let's just go down this rabbit hole a little bit more in the context of my life. I am obviously, anyone with Enneagram probably would peg me as a seven, which bingo, you're right, I am a seven. And when you're a seven, you're like always deemed the optimist, positive, you know, happy-go-lucky. And it's crazy when you go through trauma or you go through, you know, a barrage of stuff that you can enter into a foreboding spirit. You got to start fighting that thing off. And then I would be pegged like, oh, Chad's fine. Like, you know, like you would tell people, I'm going through it. And like, it might be like a month or two later, you're like, hey, I'm still really going through it. And they're like, what? No, like you're, you, you're Chad. And see, the deal is, is the enemy loves to isolate us. That, oh, I feel shame to say, hey, I need you to pray for me. Or, hey, I'm still not doing good. You know, you have 1 Samuel 30 and David and his mighty men are coming back from a war campaign and they go to Ziklag and they see their houses burning, their wives and children were kidnapped, their, the, you know, all their possessions stolen and, and you know, David's about ready to get killed and then he's like strengthens himself in the Lord which is a, a key place to learn how to strengthen yourself in the Lord in the cave. But David goes, hey, we need to go get what the enemy has stolen. But 200 out of his 600 person army is we are exhausted. And he goes, hey, that's fine. Rest by the river. Us 400 will go get back what the enemy has stolen. And they come back with the bounty. And the guys are like, why are we going to give it to these other 200? They didn't do anything. They just laid by the river. And David made it a law, a decree that everyone gets back what the enemy has stolen. And some of us, it's hard for us to choose to rest, to learn to rest. That, oh no, if I rest by the river, that, that's going to communicate defeat. That's going to communicate weakness. That's going to communicate. That is such a lie. Because then you go into striving. It's actually a place of strength and trust and confidence to say, hey, I need to rest by the river. That doesn't mean you do less. It means you begin to operate and learn how to rest by the river. And you begin to invite others, hey, I'm exhausted. Can you go and get what the enemy stole from me? That you begin to find the power in your community, that you need pillars around your life before you need something to lean on. 
So I had a number of different things that happened to me from this, you know, this four-year season. And October 2018, I was in a crazy car accident. Some of you maybe follow me on Instagram, and hey, there it is. There's my little handle right there. But um, you, could, you could throw this up, the, the first image that I'm going to show. I don't know if we can play the video or we can see the image. doesn't matter. But I was um, ministering in Monterey. Yeah, go ahead. Throw on. There it is. I'm a little concussed there. Um, that's the millennial in me right there doing a selfie after a car accident. And uh, I, I, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty jacked up. When, when it's 20-foot version or 15-foot version, Chad, that, like that, that's, that's like, wow, that's pretty crazy. But what happened was is I was ministering in Monterey, and then in, uh, the next morning I was meeting with Heidi Baker and Will Hart at 9 a.m., and uh, I got into my car at 2.45 in the morning, wanted to skirt through barrier traffic, and I had a forerunner, you know, that I, I put that forerunner to rest after, after that accident. And, um, and I got to Vacaville, was pretty tired, so I'd left at 2.45 in the morning, got there at like 6 a.m., took like a 45-minute nap, <clears throat> and then got back on the road, <clears throat> and then uh, about outside of Orland, Corning area, I was falling asleep at the wheel, pulled over again, and all I had was 15 minutes. I set my alarm for 15 minutes. I don't think I fell asleep, but I closed my eyes, and I was pretty groggy, pretty out of it. I forgot to put my seatbelt on, and that's always fun. Like when you tell people, like strangers, oh, I was in a crazy car accident, all stuff, and, and you know, I was ejected through the sunroof, and they're like, oh, you didn't have your seatbelt on, huh? Like, and you could feel this shaming. <laughs> like, you know, you, it, hopefully that wakes you up, you know, type of thing, and I'm like, you know, that you just have to own it. It's when that place, when you learn to forgive yourself, which is sometimes the hardest person to forgive, is yourself. And I kind of had a little bit of an easier journey forgiving myself because I pulled over twice. Like, you know, I was somewhat aware. But, yep, fell asleep at the wheel and didn't have my seatbelt on. Woke up going cruise control 75 miles an hour. I mean, 70, no, no, 75. Um, <laughs> 75 miles an hour, had cruise control. I woke up doing this with my hands off the wheel. I was going right towards the billboard, the concrete pillars, grabbed the wheel, hit the brakes, and I'm thinking, I gotta get back on the five, gotta get back on the five. I get back onto the five, but I was a little sideways, and my uh, tires grabbed on the asphalt, and I started flipping. Uh, the highway patrolman you see behind me, uh, they were across the highway. They watched the whole thing happen. They said, you look like a sock in the dryer, ping-pong balling around, and then we watched you go ejected through the sunroof, and I'm like, ejected through the sunroof? What are you talking about? And I had, uh, uh, like, all these <clears throat> uh, cuts on my back and all this different stuff where I had skidded along Highway 5, and we watched you go back into your forerunner. So this is what happened. When I started flipping, I felt fingers go across my legs, across my torso, across my chest, and across my head, and then the forming of, a, of like a palm, which felt like a cocoon. And I felt this whole like palm go around my body, and then I was knocked out. Like you have to understand, I had my longboard surfboard in the car. I had two shortboards. Um, this phone was with me, and it was connected to my iPhone charger into my car. The, the charger cord was severed in three places. The backpack that was next to me uh, was shredded like I should have died. Uh, all the doctors said, you need to understand, this is not a once-a-year thing. This is not a once-every-two years. This is a once-every-four years that someone would walk away. I didn't, I didn't have any broken bones. I didn't have any internal bleeding. Um, I walked away. I didn't stay the night in the hospital. I had a severe concussion, though, um, and I had some pretty good scrapes. I, the highway patrolman came to me, and I went to go talk to him, and I, I couldn't talk to him because I thought I had rocks in my mouth. I mean, I thought I had, like, busted my teeth out. I pulled out four rocks the size of, like, like nickels and quarters, like, because I was doing that. I was knocked out, which me being knocked out saved my life. You know, when you have a car accident and someone who's drunk or somebody who's uh, sober, the person that's drunk is going to usually survive the accident because their body is relaxed and limp. Well, I was knocked out, so my body was pretty relaxed. 
When I was knocked out, I encountered doing 20 years of healing ministry, uh, I encountered, you know, I see these healing angels, and there's about three of them that I see a lot when I'm doing ministry. And one of these healing angels, when I was knocked out, was far away, like at a football field away, and he walked towards me slowly, and the moment he got to my face, he smiles, and I come back to consciousness. And see, it's crazy, 2014, and having this journey with God where the enemy is like putting chinks in my armor, chinks like in my, in my, in my you know, paradigm, my experiences of where is God? Is God good? Where I was like, hey, no, I'm resting. I know the scriptures. I know my history with God. But then I'm having circumstances that are screaming another message. And the enemy is like, oh, yeah, we're going to get in there. And we had like a miscarriage. You know, like I had a really good ministry friend that said, you need to get angry at God. And just yell at him. And I'm just, you know, maybe everyone's to their own. That didn't help me. That actually was way worse. But you do need to be present in your pain, not shove it down, don't cope unhealthy. Like, you need to be present in your pain, but it's probably not good to get angry at God in the areas of just like, let it go, and it's, it could be a very dangerous place. But it's crazy going through the season, like you go through, like God calls you to pray for a generation. And God's like, all right, because it's, it's, it's the goodness of God, right? Romans 8, 28, like whatever the enemy uses to, to harm, for evil, to destroy your life, God will turn around for good. That is who our God is. He is the redeemer. And you go through different life moments, circumstances, trials, and then you overcome them because we're called to be more than overcomers. And therefore, you have authority. I wasn't looking for those moments and like, yes, but I broke my clavicle in a road biking accident and they gave me Oxycontin. I had no idea like Oxycontin was heroin. You know, like, oh, here it is. This is going to inundate you to the opioid crisis. And I took Oxycontin. I feel like I was a prisoner in my own mind. And I went back to the doctor and I'm like, hey, you got to get me on something way less than this stuff. And he's like, no, you had an invasive surgery. You know, you had metal, you have metal put in there now. Like you have screws in there. Not only are you dealing with five, you know, places where you broke the clavicle, like you had severe, like, you know, pretty intense surgery. You need this stuff. And we went back and forth three times and I finally said, all right, how much do you make per script? And he says 150 bucks. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to a different doctor. Yes, I mean, I mean, this is the deal. Is we are four and a half percent of the world's population in America, and we consume eighty percent of the world's medications. Eighty percent. Now, there is no shame. There's no, like, I mean, you know, when we had a miscarriage, the doctor was, like, really quick to give me Prozac. Ended up researching about Prozac, SR1s, and the antidepressants. And I was like, okay, you know what? This is, like, a last line of defense. And I just began to, you know, do my research. I began to get outside. I began to understand how to get dopamine and serotonin and GABA running through my body. Sorry, we're not going down this stretch. But this is a big deal. But there is no shame if you're on SR1. But I love, like, in Canada, they're starting to prescribe people, hey, you need to go outside for one hour a day before we're going to give you an SR1, before we give you an antidepressant. You need to go outside, and you need to get in the gym. Like, thank God. But there were some things for me to, you know, and then I had this crazy, grandiose moment with God where I felt his hand go over me where I should have died and I live. And I, when I was in the ambulance, God said, this is a reset season. 
And see, I had interns from Bethel. I had a volunteer team of about eight people. And I was building Catch the Wave, did this big event with uh, um, Heidi Baker, Calvary Chapel, all this amazing stuff. And you need to understand, like, we had come from the summer of, like, God everywhere, but also, like, crazy trauma, meaning we live in Redding, and we have the worst fire in California history backed up with the worst fire in California history. And we had a newborn and David who was due on the one year anniversary of our miscarriage. He was born a few days later on June 4th, which is my great uncle David's birthday, who was an inventor and died in a plane accident. It was like this crazy barrage of redemption and restoration. But we have this, you know, six week old and the fires break out. And normally when you have a six week old, you're trying to find the rhythm and the familiarity and like your home is like your sanctuary and you're evacuated. <laughs> and then I was going through, you know, like the summer of doing these catch the waves and witches were showing up to my meetings, cursing me, which I thought was, you know, like, okay, you know, the enemy's not happy. That's a sign of a good thing. I must be doing something right. But, you know, like they're coming and they said, oh, we've been praying for your, like a coven of witches. We've been praying for your offspring to die. We know you had a miscarriage June 1st, 2017. And we're like, we never put that on social media. Like, how would they know that? And then like, you know, another meeting, they showed up with a little coffin with my name on it. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And then another one, like a week before my car accident, this, this witch curses me. You're going to die the way your namesake died, which is my uncle Chad, who died in a car accident. And then I'm in a car accident. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go rest by the river for a little bit. You know, I'm dealing with a four-month-old and the fact like, man, I fell asleep at the wheel. Like, that's the thing that's on me. I had a moment of, like, weakness that could have cost me my kids not to have their natural dad in their lives. So you got to process that. And I had, you know, all this momentum, and I just, like, was like, hey, you know what? I am going to just shut things down for a little bit. And that comes from a place of trust because the enemy and even my own like thinking or just knowing, you know, momentum, knowing about momentum, knowing about like, you know, it takes a train when it starts picking up speed, it's easier to get it going faster than to slow it down. And so I'm like, oh, I shouldn't shut down, catch the wave. Like I shouldn't pause on that. I'm going to lose all my interns. I'm going to lose all my volunteers. I'm going to lose all my momentum. The enemy's like, oh yeah, you're going to lose it all. You, you know, and I'm like, you know what? No, I need to just do it. And it's this place of trust. See, God is so with you in the journey. You guys doing okay? This place of trust, security, that the Father's with you. I remember traveling with Bill Johnson and Chris Fountain in the early 2000s to Harvest Rock, to Cheon's church, and I would like you know, be there and I'd go into open visions, I'd dream with God, like, man, one day I'm gonna preach here, I'm gonna get like, you know, crazy words of knowledge and healing's gonna uh, break out and all this stuff. And a couple of years later, we moved down to Orange County and I start going to like all the Harvest Rock conferences and one of the Revival Alliance conferences, my wife Julia says, hey, I know you're going to this conference all week, but I have a musical performance on Thursday night, can you come? And it's at 8.30 and I'm like, oh, I'll go to worship at Harvest Rock and then I'll run over to a performance. And Cheon grabs me before the worship and says, hey, Chad, I've been hearing about some of your testimonies. Can you share a testimony after worship? And I'm a maximizer, so I was like, yeah, I can do a five-minute testimony, then run over there. So worship gets over. Cheon calls me up to the stage, and he's about ready to give me the microphone. He goes, what is on you? And then he goes flying back into the drum set with the microphone. And I'm like, what is on me? And I just take a quick evaluation, and I've always prayed since so a little boy, like, God, make me like Gideon, that you would put me on like a glove. Like, David prayed the prayer, God, make me the man of your right hand, like, seeing the power of God. And I'm like, oh, man, you put me on like a glove. And I'm like, I don't need a microphone. And I just go, take it. And everyone's like, starts getting rocks, like thousands of people. And Hadi and Roland Baker go flying out in the power of God into the Korean pastor section with their legs up in the air. Georgie and Benoff jumping over people, tackling them. And Bill Johnson's just like, Thank you, Holy Spirit. Just thank you. 
I go over to like the wheelchair section and I'm like, get up in the name of Jesus. And like people get up and I don't know what their conditions were or maybe they could get up, but you know, like, you know, but, but they start, like some of them start running. I'm like, I don't think if they're in a wheelchair, they could run. Like God is touching some of these people. And then Cheon Army crawls to me, hands me the microphone. I release his crazy testimony. And then I jump off the stage and I like go like, you know, exit left. And I actually heard God say, this could be the next wave of awakening in America. And I go to the, you know, like out, like to go to my wife's performance. And John and Carol Knott, who's ministering that night, grabbed me and said, Chad, the anointing of God's all over you. You need to speak tonight. And then Cheon hands the microphone to his associate pastor. He runs over and goes, hey, I'm the father of this house, this conference. You need to speak tonight. I don't know, maybe you and John and Carol could like tag team, but you need to share. And in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to come home late tonight to our apartment in Orange County, and I'm going to have the DVD, and I'm going to have chocolates and flowers, and I'm going to say, honey, I'm so sorry I missed your performance. Here's some chocolate. I will make it to the next one, but check out what God did at Harvest Rock. But thank God, out of your heart, your mouth speaks. And I found myself saying, thank you so much for this opportunity. I'm so honored. I'm so privileged. You know, thank you so much, John and Carol and Che. And, but I made a commitment to my wife. I need to go to Azusa Pacific. And I think I broke a couple traffic laws. Yeah, you can get excited. You, you could, I broke a couple traffic laws to get there. And I remember, like, getting there, like, a couple minutes after it just started. And I'm trying to find a seat. And these people are like, shh. And, like, this thing in me was like, do you know who I am? I'm the man of his right hand. And in me sitting down, like it was so refreshing to sit down in a place that no one knew me, no one had honor, no one was hungry for what I was carrying to come from such a polarized experience where there was like all this hunger and honor. And I sat there and I was like, oh, I am in the perfect place. I just made one of the best decisions of my life. Now, it's a tension because there is sacrifice when you're going after God, but, it, but God will give you opportunities to step into your dreams, and if it begins to violate and blow up close relationships in your life, you are supposed to say no and trust that God will bring you in another season back to that dream. And that's what I'm talking about with trust. Is I'm like, man, this has been a dream in my heart since 2016. Catch the wave. Like, no, I'm just going to lay it down. I'm going to lay by the river. It's what Joe, you know, we saw in the parking lot. Pause. Because pause is not going backwards. Pause sometimes is going forwards. And when you are going through trauma or going through healing, sometimes you're taking two steps forward, one step back, and the enemy so wants you to focus on that step backwards and you'll be inundated by that, consumed by that. But if you could just do the math and say two steps forward, one step back means I'm one step forward. I'm advancing. I'm taking ground. So a month after my car accident, I'm spending time with God in the prayer chapel of the Bethel. And the Holy Spirit comes to me and says, Chad, I want to talk to you. And I'm like, that's kind of why I'm here. You know, like, let's talk. And he goes, no, I don't want to talk to 36-year-old Chad. I want to talk to 6-year-old Chad. And I became a 6-year-old boy. And you can put the second uh, image on there. And the Holy Spirit takes me to what the floor, the valley of Yosemite would look like. And I saw this art easel in the valley of Yosemite. And the Holy Spirit says, Chad, it's time to do art again. Now, you need to understand, God will give you many arrows to kill anxiety, trauma, um, wholehearted living. He's given to give you many arrows. And a lot of those arrows he probably gave you in your childhood. I come from a family of artists. Like my grandma was a professional artist. She was a sculptor, watercolor, acrylic. My mom is a creative arts pastor at Bethel. She's amazing at art. She practically is a professional artist. Uh, her art would be in like the City Hall of Reading, all this different stuff. She's amazing. And... When I was six years old, I did an art gallery tour with my grandma in Laguna Beach and uh, uh, Ashland, Oregon and Monterey, Carmel. And I get triggered at six years old of going on this art tour and my inheritance as an artist. But with my grandma and my family line, there was a lot of pressure. And when I experience pressure, sometimes I go into rebellion mode. <laughs> All right. <laughs> And so, and then I had a couple of bummer moments with some art teachers growing up, 
where uh, they, they, I felt criticized and I started shutting down, self-sabotaging to the point my freshman year of high school, I took a ceramics class and I flunked ceramics. If you flunk ceramics, you have got to have some element of self-sabotage going on in your life. But in my 20s and in my 30s, I started finding my lane and finding my sweet spots for other expressions of creativity. And I'm like, well, I guess art just wasn't there. Like, you know, like I have these other things going on. But if you were to like get me to be honest and vulnerable, that is a giant that's taunting me. But it was this place of, man, I wish I would have done that more when I was a kid, or I wish I would have like, you know, and I just like, oh, too much life has passed me by. And that would be playing the guitar and music and art. And I'm like, all right. And it was so crazy how my car accident was my entry point for breakthrough. And I began to do art. I began to take art classes. I began to go to my mom's classes and I could feel this comparison. I could feel this pressure. And I'm like, ah, oh, break it off. I'm going forward. Joe would come and do art with me actually in this season. And it's crazy because I would do counseling and sozos and I love that, but I would find in art where I'd get lost in art, where I would actually like leave out of this like two hour, three hour art experience of, oh my gosh, something like I was made whole. Something happened where healing began to break in that I wasn't finding in counseling or so. So I found elements of it, but then I found elements here in art. I found elements of healing when I would get on the guitar and I would find my own voice and then the Psalms and David made all the more sense. And that's the deal is you've got to find your voice. You've got to find the many arrows that God has given you to destroy the enemy, to begin to find peace. Because it's peace that surpasses understanding. You know, talking about like our generation's journey of, okay, everything needs to make sense, all theology, God needs to fully make sense, which is crazy to me, because if we fully comprehend God, we just reduce God to our own minds and understanding. But when I was radically saved at 14, when Jesus came into my bedroom and said, you're either gonna be my best friend or I'm gonna hand you over to Satan, and the moment I said, Jesus, I want you to be my best friend, he put his arms around me, and one of the biggest things that happened to me, manifestations, was I felt this peace that surpasses understanding that I know that I know that I know that I know that I'm a son. It's intriguing, the whole place of peace and rest. You know, Jesus on the boat was sleeping in the midst of a storm, and the disciples wake him up, and they're like, do you even care that we're gonna die? Do you even care about our lives? Like, that's a pretty crazy confrontation to the Savior of the world. And then he commands, you know, the storm, peace, be still. And they're like, oh my gosh, even the waves, the wind, like, listen to this guy. And I've heard people like preach on, and it, it could totally be like it's a valid point that, that Jesus was, you know, what, where he was kind of frustrated was like, hey, why did you wake me up? Like you have the authority to rebuke the storm. Like as you learn in the story before in the, in the uh, multiplication of fish and loaves, he tells Peter and the disciples, you have what it takes to feed these people. But could it be that Jesus was always doing what the father was doing and he was asleep Therefore, the Father was inviting him into a place of rest because sleep is a manifestation of rest and rest is a manifestation of peace. So could it be that he wasn't upset or frustrated that they didn't rebuke the storm? He might have been frustrated. Why didn't you join me in taking a nap in the midst of the storm? To learn how to sleep in the middle of the storm, in the middle of circumstances, in the middle of crazy stuff happening, that you would find rest. You understand that America, Americans, 70% of Americans are sleep deprived. Do you know that sleep deprivation is the number one trigger for mental health dysfunction? Do you know that when you don't sleep for 18 hours, your body chemistry is the same of being drunk at a .08 alcohol level. And when you're at 24 hours, you just hit .10. 
And I had to deal with this where I'd have night sweats in the middle of the night and I would have to change the sheets and I just couldn't go back to sleep and I was getting three hours and four hours and I was dealing with sleep deprivation. So I understand this world. Plus, I have little tiny kids. Jesus. I feel like people are about ready to encounter God as the Prince of Peace. March, I begin to declare... God, you are the Prince of Peace. I want to discover peace. Please pick up your kids. I am going to land the plane. No, no, I'm going to land the plane. You could go to the next picture. Here's the deal. When you are, I love the many arrows that God gives us to release peace into our lives, to release trust into our lives, to release hope into our lives. And that whole foreboding deal, like I learned through Brene Brown, that hope is actually cultivated. I used to think I forced gut my way in hope. Like, but I didn't realize that hope, you, to grow in hope, you could grow in hope and it's through intentionality, it's through this place of cultivating hope. And that's what's gonna kill a foreboding spirit, is this place of hope and putting your trust in God but here's the deal, like, and then I, I discovered float tanks, I discovered all kinds of creative stuff, like, you guys need to go after peace and hope, and be aggressive, and be on the offensive, but one of the things that will bring healing and wholeness to your life, and this is a kingdom principle that I first found in the areas of healing, dealing with cancer, back pain, a number of different things. Like somebody's dealing with back pain for 10 years and I'll sometimes ask them, hey, when's the last time you prayed for someone else's back? And it's crazy that when we're in our journey of healing and wholeness, we can be very introspective and that is good for a season. It is good, but you have to be balanced in the areas of you go and help others, and if you sometimes find your own breakthrough as you go fight for other people's breakthrough. <laughs> that there's times when you can get your eyes off of yourself, like you need to be present in your pain, but also you need to go help others that are in pain. So I'm going through this, and you know, like, just, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't talk about this too much, but because I was dealing with severe PTSD, like a month after my car accident, I jumped on a, a plane, someone gifted me a car down here, and I jumped on a plane and had a claustrophobic attack. I've flown over a million miles. I've never had a claustrophobic attack in a, a plane, let alone an hour-long plane ride where I've been in the plane for like 16 hours at once. Like, and I'm like, whoa, what is going on? I met with a psychologist that works with Navy SEALs coming back from tours of duty to assess do they have PTSD. And she's like, you have severe PTSD. And I'm like, all right, time to kill this thing. And that's where I found art. That's where I found all this different stuff. And I discovered there actually is a thing called art therapy. And it actually is one of the number one killers of PTSD. So I laid things down and then, you know, comes June where I was doing all this work, you know, like gaining peace, gaining momentum, gaining like breaking off PTSD. And then my buddy says, hey, I feel like me and you need to do a surf camp together. This was in the end of June. Joe joined me for this and we did a special needs surf camp. We did a surf camp for kids, and then we did a special needs surf camp. And I'm like in this place of meditating on peace and hope. And I'm like taking out this blind kid, Anthony, who um, uh, was born blind. And we got him up eight waves. He got up and stood up. Like, it was amazing. And like, you know, this one four-year-old kid, he had Down syndrome. Like, we're, he, we, we, uh, my buddy Dana took him tandem surfing. Like, you're just like, you're, this is so good. And I would just cry and go, this is what I was made for. To like help others. And this picture that you see up here is two months after my car accident, this lady calls my wife who's a realtor. My wife is a realtor in Reading. And this lady from uh, Lori and Steve, Lori is not here, is she? No, she's not here. Okay, uh, so Lori and Steve, and uh, they live in Doheny, Dana Point. And she contacts my wife and says, hey, I want to buy a house. She comes up in December. It's two months after my accident. And she says, I want to tell you my story 
uh, about two years ago on Super Bowl Sunday, my husband went on a bike ride, and about 4 p.m., I got a phone call. I was pregnant with my fifth son, and I got a phone call that my husband was hit by a drunk driver in a truck where he didn't have a spine injury, but it was uh, a brain injury where his brain does not fire, and he can't move like voluntary. He can't move his head. He can't talk. He can move some fingers, move, because he's not... He's not, it's not a spine injury, so like he'll have involuntary movement, but he can't, you know, talk, he can't, he can't move his neck, he can blink. And when I was, she, she says, I was at Calvary Chapel when he did catch the wave on the Friday night, and I heard the voice of God speak to me, he said, this guy, Chad, will take your husband surfing, because he grew up in the water. My first thought was, oh my gosh, like, I had a brain injury. I could have been in this guy's situation. Who would take me surfing? And this overwhelming thought and feeling and emotion was, do unto others as you would have them do to you. And I, I got to think of this guy's surfing. But I look at her. I'm still recovering. I got brain fog and all this different stuff, PTSD. And I tell her, when I get better, when I get healed, I will take him surfing. So I don't remember that conversation, have the special needs surf camp at the end of June. Something's happening in my heart of like, man, this is what I'm called to do. I feel like God is like calling me out of the Selah season, the rest season by the river, and it's time to go for it. And I'm like, okay, I got to take this guy out surfing. And so the end of August, I took him surfing. That's his wife holding him up. There's me and Dana and Jason. We got him three waves. And then when they're in the van, locked and loaded, ready to go, they leave. I'm in the parking lot, and suddenly it hits me, this conversation I had with her in December that I wasn't thinking, aware of, of, oh my gosh, I'll take him when, you know, I'm better. And I end up just like having this moment of, I guess I'm better. And that's when you know you're on the other side of healing is when you begin to have closure, when you begin to have moments where you're contending for other people's breakthrough and you begin to find and realize, oh my gosh, I'm feeling like whole, I'm feeling way better than where I was at before. So God's gonna give you many arrows in your quiver to destroy the enemy, to be more than an overcomer, to operate out of rest and peace. And this is what the world is needing. I love the family declaration of Timothy. Love, power, and a sound mind and breaking off anxiety. That's what we're called to do. So, this morning, just put your hands on your heart. Lord, I thank you for everyone in this room. I pray, Lord, that they would encounter the Prince of Peace, that they would learn how to sleep in the midst of the storm, that, they, that you would begin to teach them what rest looks like, what peace looks like, what hope looks like, and that there's many arrows. We pray for creativity. We pray, Lord, that they would begin to be triggered of things in their childhood, the arrows in which they're called to destroy the enemy. The places that got shut down, Lord, that you would begin to resurrect. I wrote a book called The Risk Factor, and I didn't realize that God was calling me into risk of doing art. That was way scarier and riskier than jumping on a parked car and preaching the gospel. It comes in various shapes and sizes. And so I pray, Lord, for risk takers in this room that would be wholehearted, that they would be a generation that transcends age, gender, and race, a generation that lives in the arena, that they would recognize, wow, I've got some mud on my face, I've got some blood on my face, I've got skin in the game, and I am on a journey of wholehearted living. I'm just going to release this really quick, as I feel like, too, that God wants to give you eyes to see, ears to hear, where Joe was releasing that pause word. I remember in my times of, like, going after peace, that I would just sit on my back deck and watch the sunset, and God began to speak to me about transition, 
and how I love the sunset. I, I, I've done it many times where I've woken up at three in the morning to climb a mountain to watch a sunrise. Like you have to do some inconvenient things for a sunrise, sunset, but it's the most beautiful times of a 24-hour cycle. And that day becoming night, night becoming day, then a 24-hour cycle, the most beautiful times of a 24-hour day is transition. And some of us, when we're in transition, we want to say, God, get me out. Everyone loves the glory, but no one likes glory to glory. No one likes the two part, which is transition. But there's beauty in transition. Some of the most beautiful times in your life is transition. And so, Lord, I pray for an anointing to be present, to not shove things down, to not cope in an unhealthy place of trying to put a Band-Aid on a gaping wound, but to be present, but then to begin to find beauty, to begin to find God's hand, begin to find God in the midst of carrying you. So Lord, we just thank you that you're reinforcing in our lives and giving us an authority to preach the gospel that he is good. And the goodness of God just be a residue in Southern California. Lord, that you would raise up ambassadors of the goodness of God. Amen. All right, love you guys. Thanks for having me. Come on. Jesus, can we get our, our prayer team coming up here? Um, well, man, did you guys get something? It was a lot to, felt like a, a banquet, a banqueting table. You just get to kind of take your pick what you wanted to grab and eat. I love it. Um, we're excited to have you guys here. Thanks for coming. Um, if you need prayer for anything, our prayer team's coming up here. Uh, I, yep, it's explosive still. Uh, go ahead and grab a cupcake on your way out if you want. Um, hug some babies and some parents. <laughs> um, yeah, let me pray for us. Father, we love you. I keep hearing the word abundance, abundance, abundance over us, God. Um, and I just think, well, you know, some of you guys are in the middle of transition. Some of you guys came out of it. Some of you guys are in the middle of anxiety, and, and you got some real keys today. No matter where you're at in it, we're called to thank God, whether in or out, and we give Him glory and give Him praise. So, Father, we are thankful for every single person in here, God, whether they're outside of transition, in the middle of it, or they're going into it, God, we just know we trust you, God. We trust you, Father, and we give you praise. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Have a great week. We'll see you Sunday. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. Be sure to visit our website at presenceoc.org to find out more about Presence Church. 